0: Hey everybody, this is Becky Buller, and you're listening to Acoustic Music Talk with Brad Apple.
1: Welcome to Acoustic Music Talk, where we explore the art of acoustic music and musicians with your host, Brad Apple. Hello folks, and welcome to Acoustic Music Talk. I'm your host, Brad Apple, and welcome to Season 2. We've got a lot of great artists lined up for you this season that we're going to be talking to. And today we're starting off with a fellow that uh, i followed his career for quite a number of years now. He's been with a seldom seen for almost 25 years, and he's a great dobro player. He's been with other bands also, and done a lot of recording, especially up in the Washington, D.C. area. And with me today is Mr. Fred Travers. Well, Fred, welcome to the show. We're pleased to have you on here. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time, and really enjoy your music with a seldom seen. And how's things going up in Maryland?
0: Hey, Brad, thanks for having me. Everything's going pretty good. Weather's been pretty nice here recently, and so been enjoying that. Getting a lot of stuff done done at home. Yeah. And not going out on the road and playing some music, but you know things happen. Just got to work through it.
1: Well, Fred, um, how did you get started playing Dobro? Is Dobro your first instrument or do you you play other instruments? Kind of tell us how you got the music bug.
0: Well, actually to go back further than just the Dobro guitar, um, my mom and dad loved music and they always had it on at the house and they didn't play but they always encouraged my brothers and I to, you know, if we wanted to get involved with it, you know, they were real supportive and and encouraging for us to do that. And the kind of music I listened to when I was a kid that was always playing at the house was kind of country music from the 60s. And one of the things that kind of really was something that I really liked was the sound of the pedal steel. And it just kind of—it was something about that slide guitar. And um, then as I went, went into high school in the, the middle '70s, you know, I was kind of a more of a the pop music kind of guy, and so and rock and roll. And I liked the Almond Brothers, and of course Dwayne Almond was a slide player. And that that again, that sound kind of came into my mind, and I really liked it. And so I actually came into bluegrass kind of always say i came in through the side door yeah because i was around late 70s i was playing acoustic music with some friends just for fun going over their house and kind of having little picking parties we didn't call them that at that time but now i know that's what they're called and we'd sit around play acoustic guitars and try to sing harmonies and all that kind of thing just had a good old time and you know some of the people that we played were uh Folks like we did Dylan songs, we did Eagle songs, and we did Doc Watson songs. And I really didn't know who Doc Watson was, but I I did start listening to him and I noticed that Merle, his son at the time, played some slide on his guitar. Uh And sure enough, around 1980, uh, Doc and Merle played a concert at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. And so some friends of mine and my wife and I, we uh, we uh decided to go there, and we went, and the opening act for that night was this band called The Seldom Scene, uh-huh. and when, about the first note they struck, I just knew there was something special there, and when I saw Mike Aldrich playing a dobro, I didn't even know what that was at the time. I thought, you know, that's... That's the instrument that really catches my attention. I'd like to pursue that. So that's pretty much how that got started, really.
1: Yeah. Well, that's cool that (laughs) you see in the seldom scene and being uh, drawn to to them and to Mike Aldridge and the Dobro. And it's kind of ironic that you ended up playing in that very band.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's 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 mind-boggling to me to this day. It really is. It really is. But you know, from that night on, I actually became you know just a avid seldom seen fan and um went to the Birchmere as many thursday nights as i could got all the seldom seen records mike aldridge records i could find and uh, actually the next day after that concert uh, my older brother who actually played music professionally around dc in the late 60s early 70s rock and roll music he had a silver tone guitar that you know one of the one first ones he started with back in the day and i I took that silver tone and raised the strings on it as best I could, and found me a slide and started trying to play trying to play uh, Dobro guitar, you know.
2: Oh, yeah. And
0: so after that, like I said, I got all the records and went to as many concerts and shows as I could, just trying to teach myself some different things and watching Mike play. And of course, uh, I was fortunate to be close enough to the, to the area that
1: I could do that. Right. So after you got your dobro, were you kind of self-taught there in the beginning, or did you have somebody showing you?
0: Yeah, pretty much in the beginning I kind of was self-taught. That's kind of the way I've always done things. When I learned how to play guitar, I just kind of taught myself. And Actually, I played music back in, in high school and middle school in the uh, concert band, and I never really, I mean, as much as I, uh, you know, I learned a little bit about reading music and all that kind of thing, and but I never was really you know proficient at being you know reading reading off the paper to play.
2: Right. If I
0: heard something a couple times, I could play it. You know. Yeah. Uh, but um, I did. Uh, getting back to the original question, I the first thing I got with the dobro was uh, a book by Stacy Phillips called the Dobro Book, and that just had a wealth of information. And unfortunately, let's see, that would have probably been back in nineteen. 19- eighty, just nineteen eighty one. And there just wasn't the internet wasn't around and there were there weren't any videos or anything like that.
2: Yeah. As
0: far as trying to learn, just like, you know, most folks probably do. You know, they just try to listen to records and wear out needles on the record player, just back going back, going back, going back, going back trying to figure out what somebody was playing. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty much how it got started.
1: Yeah, I think most of the players uh you know in your generation and mine also that those tools that are available so readily now like youtube and pretty much any song you want to learn almost you can go to youtube and type it in and somebody's giving a little lesson on it or (laughs) something like that so
0: which is a wonderful thing that's a really really cool thing you know because i used to listen to records of the seldom seen or maybe a Mike Aldridge record of Mike taking a break or playing a particular tune. And I could find the notes that he was playing, but sometimes I was finding them at the wrong position on the neck.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: that's what helped me was when I got the opportunity to go watch him play, I could see where he was playing it. And then it started to make sense to me how he was able to do that. So, you know, that it was, it was interesting. But uh, it was a lot of fun, too. I mean, I was just, you know, you know how that feeling is. You know, you just can't wait to get home and oh, yeah. put a record on and, and get the guitar out and just start playing, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's so exciting when you, you know, when the light comes on and you, you figure out how they're doing something. <laughs> it's really satisfying. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. And and when you're learning early on, it's kind of like, you know, you learn in leaps and bounds. You know, yeah. you'll go for a couple of days and, Seems like you're not making any progress, and then all of a sudden, one little lick or one little way that you do something with your right hand, it just makes it easy, and yeah. so another door is open. So you know, you just keep going through all these doors. You know, right. unfortunately, that doesn't work for me anymore these days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it gets it gets tougher as you get get a little older, do not it? It does.
0: It yeah. does. And I don't know whether it's just muscle memory or probably, in my case, just lack of attention that I should be working on it (laughs) a lot more like I used to, I think. I think that's more the case than anything else.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Mike Aldridge, um, you got to learn some from Mike, didn't you? I Uh, did. I mean, one-on-one, I mean.
0: Yeah, I did. Of course, like I was saying, I used to go watch him play as much as I could and listen to all of his recordings and records with the scene. But then uh, I got married in 1982, uh, April of 1982. And for a wedding present, uh, my wife, Kyle, she got me a lesson with Mike Aldrich. Wow. And I was just shocked. I, you know, because I just held all the, all the folks in the seldom scene, the original guys and those at the time, and had just in such high regard, I was like, how on earth did you get in touch with Mike Aldridge? And she said, I just looked his name up in the phone book and gave him a call. And I said, there's no way Mike Aldridge's uh, phone number is in the phone book. You know, (laughs) he's like this superstar. There's no way. But you know, that kind of, that kind of surprised me. But yeah, I, I eventually probably in, uh, late fall of 1982, I eventually got together with him and, uh, it was quite an experience. I tell you, it was so, so neat to just be sitting right across you know, from him oh, I bet. and just seeing how he did things and just asking him questions about this, that, and the other. And, and such a, you know, wonderful guy on top of being, you know, such a tremendous musician and uh, he was more than willing to show me anything I wanted to know. So yeah. it was very cool.
1: Well, I was going to ask you about that. What, what type of guy Mike Aldridge was. So sound sounded like oh, he was a Mike real, was, real gentleman. Mike
0: was super. Yeah, Yeah, super guy. He, he really was. And it's funny because his stage persona was, was a, and he, for the most part, he was, he was pretty quiet, you know, kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. just sit over there and do his thing perfectly and not really say anything on the microphone or anything like that. Just come up and play his part just like it sounded on the record, you know, and then sing, you know, with the trio. That's so good. But he actually had a a really great sense of humor, and uh, he was a fun guy to hang out with. He really was.
1: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Because did you have uh, the one lesson with him, or did you have more than one directly with him? Oh,
0: yeah. I had a number of them, actually, through the next uh, two or three years. Um, But it wasn't a regular thing, like once a week or once a month, because what I would do was I would actually – because I was so familiar with his and the seldom seen music, I would actually pick out little questions here and there. He didn't have to teach me a whole song or something like that. i just pick out little nuances of how did you do this, that, and the other. And literally, I would go to his house and have like three legal pad sheets filled up with questions yeah. about you know particular songs and particular licks. Yeah. And uh, we would go through that, and <clears throat> he would put it on tape for me, thank goodness, at, uh, put it on cassette tape, our whole lesson, you know, my question, Mm -hmm. his response, what he played, and, um, so that was, I would bring that home, and it literally take me four months just to go through that one lesson, just try to figure it, you know, try to get it, you know, in my head, and be able to perform it, and so, probably about once every four months, I'd go back with my legal pad, and sit down with him, and, and, you know, it was just great, because, uh, I mean, how fortunate is someone to be able to live close enough and to one of your heroes to be able to just go sit in their basement and you know and ask them questions and you know learn things from from that particular person is really special.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Well, after you got some traction on the Dobro and got you know got up and running on it, um I know you're in the uh, at least one band I'm familiar with, you were in Paul Atkins and Borderline band for a while, correct?
0: Yes, that's correct. Um, Probably around 1983 to 1986, I was just playing kind of locally with some local bands around Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland. There were some clubs back then that still had, you know, bluegrass music on Friday, Saturday nights, things like that. And, excuse me, and then um, probably around... Before I went with Paul in the Borderline band, probably around 1986 to 1989, I went uh, and played with the Gary Ferguson band. Gary Ferguson is a singer-songwriter from Pennsylvania. And uh, that was probably my real first experience of actually doing a little bit of traveling here and there and playing at some uh, small festivals and things like that.
2: Mm-hmm. and
0: then after gary's band i was with paul from probably around 1989 to 1993 and of course that paul's band expanded that a little bit we went a little farther away played a lot of a lot of great places and made, made some pretty fair recordings i think too not to brag
1: yeah uh speaking of recording i was going to ask you another kind of a side question here um I think one of the first records I got where I became aware of you was uh, Bill Emerson's Reunion CD, and you you played on a few tracks on that CD.
0: Yeah, yes, I did. I remember that. That's yeah. funny. It's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking about our conversation tonight, and I was trying to think about some of the things that I played on early on, and that one didn't actually come to mind. But yeah, that was a, that was a tremendous opportunity for me to play with some. Super great musicians. Yeah. I think Ronnie and Ricky Simpkins were on that record, if I remember right.
1: Yeah, they were.
0: That was a that was a fun session. It turned out really well.
1: Yeah, I know one track you were on was with Bill Harrell, I believe.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, that, yeah. you're right. I think it. it uh, I remember that set, we were at. Uh, I think it was called Big Moe's Recording Studio.
1: That's right. And yeah, I remember the credits. Pretty
0: popular, but pretty popular back in the day in this area. Yeah. And, uh, Ronnie Freeland was probably engineering and yeah, it it was, it was weird for me because, you know, I hadn't really been out and about all that much. And here I am sitting in there with Bill Emerson, Bill Harrell, Ricky and Ronnie Simpkins and Larry Stevenson. And I'm like, Whoa, (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be here or not, but that was, that was, that was, that's actually been, been my whole, uh, you know, the whole experience, you know, it's always been, even to this day, I still go and meet people that I've never have listened to them for years, and it's just, you know, it, that that feeling continues throughout all the years, for sure.
1: Yeah. Tell us a little bit, I'm sure other acoustic bluegrass players out there may be listening to the podcast, if they're like me, you know, back in the day, I read credits, that was one of my favorite things, you know, and I got my CDs in of, of bands and People, you know, I wanted to read the credits. And, and like you mentioned, Big Mo Recording Studio showed up on a lot of those, uh, especially like yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s. What what was Big Mo like? Maybe tell that to some of the musicians oh. out there that have read that credit and wondered about it.
0: Oh, as far as the studio itself? Uh huh. Yeah, oh, it was a great place. I mean, uh, they had, I think the interesting thing that they could do is they actually had. A mobile unit, too. They had a, uh, uh, like a rider truck kind of thing mm-hmm. where, like, the, uh, control room was in that. And they, used, they had a, like, I can't remember whether it was in a commercial area. I'm pretty sure if it, it was. And it seemed like to me that backed up into a loading dock outside of where the actual studio was where the musicians were performing. Okay. And then they, that, I remember that being in the truck. And if I, I could be wrong about that, but I always thought that was very interesting. But the the reason they had that is so they could do remote recordings, multi-tracks, you know, out and about for concerts or, or whatever the case may be. So I, I thought that was a pretty unique approach
2: yeah.
1: know,
0: for them to do that.
1: That's kind of uh, similar, I guess, like to, you know, thinking about uh, the Anactron truck, you know, that was on so many, so many credits, Brian Ahern, you know, Emmylou Harris and, Right a lot of people I guess that's kind of a similar concept there what they were doing too,
0: yeah, I think you know from a business standpoint, it's just you know just the outsider looking in it just makes more sense, you can be more flexible, you know you can not only have stuff recorded at your studio but you can go on remote uh things and and then do do the same thing, and um you know it just makes makes you more in demand, I guess you yeah. know, I would think it would anyway,
1: oh yeah, well, um. So you're you're playing with Paul Atkins and Borderline, and made some records with right. him, and made some side records projects with like Bill Emerson and different ones. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I guess maybe the next thing you were involved in is seldom seen. Is that correct, or is there something else in between there?
0: Well, I actually um, i uh, I kind of decided that I was going to have to leave uh, the Borderline band around '93, <clears throat> and it had nothing to do with anything but just the fact that. I, I was hired by the Anne County Fire Department in 1978. So I was, at that point in time, I was still working as a full-time firefighter. Hmm. And, you know, Paul and the band was getting busy, and it was kind of hard for me to juggle the schedule around to, to make all the dates and all that kind of thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Because, you know, we... We weren't flying places, you know, you couldn't leave the day of. We were, Paul had a bus and we were doing that, which I loved. It was, it was a great experience. All the guys in the band, I mean, they're just my best friends to this day. And, but it just got a little too hectic, you know, with the family and working for the fire department and all the fa- all the responsibilities. So I just took a little break, but it didn't last long because it wasn't long after that gary ferguson was still playing and he asked me to come back and join his band and that was a little more manageable didn't quite play as much as uh, paul's band and didn't quite travel as far away that kind of thing so that worked out and then actually around 1995 is when you know i got the call from uh john duffy to ask if i'd you know like to come over and pick at his house and uh maybe become a member of the Seldom scene. So um that's that's pretty much it was one band in between uh Paul Atkins and a borderline band and the Seldom scene.
1: Okay. Well that call from John Duffy must have been really exciting.
0: Oh yeah, to say the least.
2: Yeah. No question.
0: <laughs> it was uh the thing about it it was like rumor had it that, you know, the scene Mike Aldridge, T Michael Coleman, that bass player at the time and moon Klein, who was the guitar player/singer with the scene at that time, had a band, another band, side band that they had called Chesapeake, and um, I think they really wanted to kind of branch out on their own. And so, rumor had it that they were going to leave, and it's, you know, there was speculation as to whether John Duffy and Ben Eldridge were going to continue, you know, and. Um, Thankfully they decided to, and uh, so I had the, op- got the opportunity to become a member of the Seldom Seen, which was, like you said earlier, it was just, I was like, this is, this is mind boggling. And actually the phone call that I got from John Duffy was kind of interesting really, because when I talk on the phone, I have a tendency to kind of, kind of walk around a little bit, even back in those days when you had long cords on the kitchen phone to yeah. walk yeah. around a little bit, and you know, maybe one of those early Ones where you pulled the antenna up, you could a little bit more remote, yeah, well, when I answered the phone and he said, "Hey, Fred, this is John Duffy, I immediately sat down,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and uh that's pretty much where I stayed throughout the conversation <laughs>
2: yeah. so
0: uh that was it was great, it was a very exciting times, no question,
1: yeah, I was just thinking, if you hadn't a sit down, you might have fell down, right." <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly yeah. exactly or, or or stumbled over something for sure, <laughs>
1: yeah. no question yeah well what was that first uh get together rehearsal like with with john and ben eldridge i guess by that time ronnie simpkins had also kind of been recruited and, and dudley connell
0: right right yeah oh it was it was awesome man it just was like you know it was it was just it was kind of surreal really because you know we just And it really, you know, John and Ben were just so cool about the whole thing. It wasn't like you were under pressure or anything, you know, for this audition, so to speak. It was, Hey man, we're just going to pick a few songs here. Let's see what happens. And, um, and it was, it was a, it was a very nice afternoon, you know, and, and I kind of got a good, pretty good vibe from it when it was all said and done. And, uh, turned out that Ben and John were happy and Dudley and Ronnie were happy. And I certainly was happy. So, uh, it kind of went on from there,
1: for sure. Where was your first show after after you got into the band? There,
0: it actually was New Year's Eve, 1995, and when we the first time we rehearsed, were pro, was probably late uh, uh, summer of 1995, hmm. and so it actually worked out good because we got together on a regular basis at John's house like probably once a week from that point on, which was a good thing. I mean, you have three-fifths of the band is is new, so we had to, you know, it was good for us to be able to do that. But the unusual thing about that, if anybody knows anything about John Duffy, he has a reputation of not wanting to rehearse
2: mm-hmm. through
0: the years. and course he didn't have much choice at this point really because there's so much transition but um I, I think he actually enjoyed it you know i think he was you know that the whole situation with maybe the band you know breaking up and all that kind of kind of got him down in the dumps a little bit but then when he got back ticking, ticking again you know with some other folks he kind of like really got into it so Ben Eldridge has always told me. He says, "I don't know how in the world you guys got him to do that." He Said we couldn't do that for you know thirty years before.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,
0: but I, I think really he didn't have much choice. But that was fun. Yeah, but New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety five, was the first show
1: at the Birchmere. At the Birchmere. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and that was that was an interesting evening too. Uh, it it typical in typical seldom scene fashion. You know, it was it was a big event. You know because, you know, it was like everybody who had been in the Seldom scene was there, all it, you know, various group configurations. And they played all the way through, you know, the New Year's Eve evening, starting from the original guys all the way down. And we were the last ones to go on, the, the new configuration, oh. you know, at the very end. So basically I'm sitting there all night long, you know, watching these guys and listening to them play, and I'm like, Oh, my gosh, you know, talk about nervous wreck. <laughs> and um, and then we went on and played our set, and things went well, and, you know, we just been going ever since. So that's a great thing.
1: Well, that's cool. I, I didn't realize that, that that first night there that the whole, uh, all the different members were there and kind of went through all the different configurations before you guys played.
0: Yep, yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's like I said, typical of the Seldom scene. Anything that they've done through the years has always been a, in a transition phase. It's always been a big event. Yeah. Like the first one that comes to mind was the 15th anniversary, you know, mm-hmm. and that wasn't long after Lou came in the band. And the 15th anniversary, well, they played it at the Kennedy Center. So that means something here in Washington, D.C. That's a pretty good venue. Yeah. And, um, of course, made a recording out of it that's real popular. And then the 20th anniversary was at Birchmere, and that was similar. Most of, the, most of the folks came back for that. I know Phil Phil Rosenthal was there, and I know uh, John Starling was there. And I think Amy Lou Harris was there. You know, the usual kind of crew that had been around the band for decades.
2: Yeah. And so
0: that was another big event. And so then had this transition to these, these new guys coming in, so it had to be a big event. So that's just kind of the way they rolled. So that, yeah, it was it, it was intimidating as heck, but it's uh, it kind of felt like, yeah, that's how the felon team does things.
1: Yeah. Well, I just thought of something. You mentioned in those anniversaries there. Uh, next year will be the 50th anniversary, right? It will. Yeah. It
0: would be, uh be November 1st, 2021, will uh-huh. be the uh, 50th anniversary of the band. Hopefully we can uh, get back on track here and get out plan, and get back to some normalcy and maybe plan something up for that. That's certainly, I think, a milestone that needs to be recognized for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to seeing what develops on that maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what Uh, was uh, a little more about John Duffy? What was he like to work with? oh, Oh, he's
0: great. He was absolutely great, and I mean, you know, I never really had, had, even though I went to so many shows and, you know, uh, talked with the guys off stage, just in passing, so to speak, talked with Mike, of course, I had taken lessons from him, so I was comfortable walking up to him and saying hello and talking to Ben. You know, John was just, I don't know, he had this presence to him that just seemed like he was this intimidating factor, Mm -hmm. and it was like, it was, he wasn't mean or anything like that but it was just like he was almost unapproachable uh, other than those people that he really knew you know
2: yeah and so
0: i never really spoke too much to john but that was one of the things that i found you know once i joined the band that he was just super nice guy look out for you i mean it was like you know he kind of took us three new guys under his wing and just took care of us and it was uh it was really cool to see that side of him, you know, to be able to be close enough to him to be able to see that side of him.
1: Yeah. Well, that's neat. You know, I know I felt that way about different ones, you know. It's almost like you're afraid to, afraid to talk to them, you know, but uh, it's neat when you do and kind of break the ice and when you're, yeah in your case, actually working with them and find out, you know, that right. they're really great people.
0: Oh, yeah. No question. And, you know, but and I totally understand. I mean, they're 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 doing a job, you know, at, to some degree.
1: Yeah. And
0: so you you kind of you don't want to infringe on their territory when they're done. You know, you don't want a whole bunch of people coming up to you or anything like that. Because back in those days, the Selden scene never they never did a record table or anything like that. They, they, they Well, I, I that's wrong, because a guy named Sean, Sean Nice used to do their record table. But early on, they would just sell records out of John Duffy's van. That's far as it went. Hmm. And the band never, nine times out of ten wasn't standing around to talk to anybody or anything like that. But um so it felt like it, you know, that's their time, that's their space, they'd just been performing, you know, they gotta kinda of unwind a little bit. But uh, yeah. no, John was a, a special guy. He was a a, a tremendous talent, um an outstanding actual businessman in the music business yeah. really had a different approach to everything and it it sounded kind of crazy but it actually worked and but uh but he was uh he was a cool dude man miss that dude miss yeah. him a lot yeah
1: well you got to make one recording with john uh, the new band did uh dream scene
0: that's correct yep i sure did i'm really thankful that happened
1: and of course, sadly, John passed away, I guess, in December of 96. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, for some reason, I'm thinking it's December 10th, and I could be wrong on that, but it was early in December. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that would have been, you know, almost, well, a little over a year than when we first got together. Yeah. And, uh, those are some hard times. They really were. Yeah. Because, you know, we really wasn't, weren't sure. What we should do at that point, because even though he would never have told you this, because the seldom scene has always been all for one, one for all. John was actually the de facto leader of the band. He, even though he would never have said that, yeah. and, you know. And of course, you got a man bigger than life with a talent that, like his, who's not there anymore. It was like, wow, I'm not sure if we can really do this. Yeah. And so that that was, took a lot of soul searching so to speak to figure out what to do but we just kind of let it play out really i mean the we did the the birchmere that year on the 31st not long after john had passed and we got dan teminsky to fill in on mandolin and sing tenor for us and you know i think you know obviously it wasn't exactly quite the same but boy he did a tremendous job yeah and it really the people just enjoyed it so much, and i don 't know whether they were still grieving for John and just glad to hear the old tunes or whatever, but uh it just really went well and so Ben we kind of left it up to Ben to be honest with you, because you know he's the original founding member, whatever he wanted to do was good with us, yeah, and so Ben said, How about we just you know we got dates on the books already for next year, so how about we just kind of go out and just see if Kind of make it like a farewell kind of thing, you know, the following year mm-hmm. and um, so that's how it started out, but the receptions we were receiving were so good that we kind of thought, you know maybe maybe we can keep this thing going so it was it wasn't a decision that was made overnight. it was made over a long period of time that and it just kind of evolved and then once. You know, we were using a number of different people to fill in on different dates. Like I said, Dan Tamensky, and then I know... Um, I'm thinking Larry Stevenson might have helped us out one time, and Don Rigsby. Mm-hmm. And then one time we were in North Carolina, and Lou Reed, who had been a former member of the band, he was relatively close by, so we asked him to come and join. And, of course, Lou you know, he's just like an old family member coming back. You know, he knew all the material, knew all the breaks. You know, and yep. and could sing the tenor part. And we played that night, and we just looked at each other and thought, "Man, that was that was sounded pretty good, and that felt good." And so that's and that was probably around. That was in nineteen ninety seven, obviously. But uh, after that, we just decided to ask Lou. Said, so, "Well, you want to do this?" And he said, "Sure." So it's been going on ever since.
1: Well, I'm sure glad uh, you guys went on, and it didn't end there. Uh, yeah, I,
0: well, me too. I mean, you know, it just—but like I said, it wasn't anything we kind of like. Okay, here's our plan. We're going to do this. It was just like kind of happened on its own. You know, yeah. we just let it play out, and and it just happened to to work out.
1: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about recording. I know you, seldom scenes, currently got a great recording out. Uh, changes and oh
0: yeah well thank you
1: it's really really good recording i was going to ask you um, when you record your dobro do you have uh, certain mics that you prefer to record with
0: um well i kind of leave it up to the engineer really to be honest with you okay. i mean i'm not that ed- educated or, or or knowledgeable of you know what quality of different mics are but yep. uh they they normally use those, uh, and I can't remember the number of them, but they're they large diaphragm Norman microphones
2: yeah.
0: on on the guitar, okay. or sometimes like a, a KM84 kind of direct condenser microphone. Yeah. But uh, it, I tell you, I'm lucky because the guitar I had that I uh, that I record with, Mike always played a uh, a pre-war about a 1935 Regal made. Model 37 guitar. And I wanted to get one of those early on. And I found one similar at, uh, let's see, that was at Elderly Instruments in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh And I bought that guitar and pretty much is the one I've used my whole, you know, time that I've played and all the various bands I played with. But it's definitely the only one I've ever recorded with, with the Celeb scene because I wanted to keep that sound as much like mics as I could, you
2: yeah. know,
1: and,
0: and not only that, as i just so familiar with the guitar, I've had it forever, but um, getting back to my point, that particular guitar actually sounds pretty good through any microphone you put in front of it, for some reason, and so, you know, I'm not really worried about the particular mics, I leave it up to the engineers, and we've been very fortunate with the seldom scene and everybody I've actually worked with that the engineers are very good quality people and, and good at what they do. So it's always turned out pretty
1: well. Yeah. You guys did this lesson with, with Jim Robinson. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. With Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course he, we met Jim years ago when he was working at uh, bias, you know, he, uh-huh. he to engineer at bias. I actually was on a couple of recordings that he, you know, were, was doing for folks and I played on a few tunes and, um, yeah, he and he's he's kinda gone out on his own and has his own like video production company and recording studio and it's actually located in his house in okay. um uh in Montgomery County, Maryland. And it was super. I mean it was it was it was really nice. We just had a great time. It was uh you know, a little bit small but that was okay because we were kinda working close so to speak. But uh he just did an outstanding job on it, he really did. And uh so that that was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing Jim's credits on a lot of the stuff that was done at, at Bias. Yeah, Bias is yeah. another great studio. Yeah, he,
0: yeah yeah that was that was really that and it still is. Yeah. I mean that's still a really great great facility. And um, yeah, because I I mean there there's been a I don't know if you've ever been to Bias, but and you know, when you walk into their You know, you walk in and there's like a little waiting area, and then there's a long hallway that goes down to where the little kitchen area is for coffee and restrooms and things like that. But all the way down that that hallway are just all the album covers and CDs that have been recorded there. And I tell you what, there's a ton of really popular bluegrass recordings that have been done there through the years. I mean, you're talking Tony Rice uh Johnson Mountain Boys Lynn Morris let's see Seen. um it's just amazing it really is and i think people you know and we just literally all the well all pretty much all the bluegrass album band uh albums were recorded there yeah. and it's it's just uh it's pretty amazing that all all those things took place in that facility, but it definitely was a good one to do it in because it's it's very well designed, and top notch equipment, and top notch people behind the behind the soundboard for sure.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I've always I've never been there. I've always wanted to to go there and see it. You know, like I say, I, I read credits on everything I got. <laughs> you know, all my years growing yeah, up and seeing I, bias on there was yeah. definitely always stuck in my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, I understand completely because I remember I actually recorded there for the first time when I was with Paul Atkins and the Borderline Band. Mm-hmm. And of course I was like you, you know, I knew, saw, and you saw all these, these really great bluegrass artists recording there from looking at the credits on the, on the album or CD or whatever. And so I was kind of in awe of it, you know, and, uh, I think the first album we, I did with Paul was, um that, uh, gospel album, Wings of Gold. And, man, it was just so cool to be in there. And they actually have two studios. There, there's, one, there's Studio A and Studio B. Studio A is a little larger yeah. with some different, you know, isolation things going on. But Studio B is just as good. It's just a little bit smaller, you know. Right. But um, it's, uh, it's amazing, man. they got these doors going into the control room from where people are mingling. So to keep the noise out, it's like these doors are like a foot and a half to two foot thick. Try, it's like everything you can do to open them up to try to get through the door, you know. Wow. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very cool place.
1: For yeah. Sure. Well, speaking of recording, Fred, have you noticed, uh, I know I ask this question to a lot of artists because I'm interested in this, you know, the the sale of, of music has really went way down for artists. I know c- CDs have been in decline for quite a long while now. I know that's something that you have bound to have noticed also
0: oh yes yeah yeah i totally agree you know the times have changed and uh downloading and this that and the other has has affected that quite a bit which is unfortunate because i'm sure any band would say the same thing but it seems you know just the the genre i'm from more familiar with bluegrass that's a big part of bluegrass you know bringing your product out for to get to the people and, and and that kind of thing and um but yeah, that has definitely changed. It has changed quite a bit. But you know, for the most part, they're, the bluegrass fans are special folks. They, they a lot of them, even though they might have downloaded the CD or whatever on their phone, they'll still like to get that hard copy of it just to have for their collection. You know, and and yeah. y- you can see the. I mean, you can download the uh, the booklet or whatever that comes with it too, I guess. But they like to have that just sit there and read and all that kind of thing. So. Yeah. That's, that's the good part about uh, the music we play.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always like to get the CD, too, because of, you know, the quality of the downloads. The MP3s, you can definitely tell a difference. Maybe not so yeah, much so I, if you just listen to the MP3 by itself, but definitely <laughs> if you, you know, do right. a side-by-side comparison.
0: No, I totally agree, yeah. It's um, it's definitely a difference. And, you know, I'm a creature of habit. I have a certain way I listen to music, and that's just the way I keep doing it, you know. The yeah. problem is now is trying to find current CD players that are available to purchase because yeah. <laughs> they aren't. They hardly make them anymore, you know.
1: I know. Yeah. I had to go to eBay and get my yeah. last one.
0: <laughs> is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand completely. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's kind of strange. Well, uh, I want to ask you about your Dobros again. You mentioned the one you've got. Uh, I guess you've got other guitars, mm-hmm. too. Do you, do you prefer more the older-style older, older style Dobros?
0: Um, yeah, and that's just personal preference for me, and I think that comes a lot from, like I say, studying and, and listening to Mike Aldridge play early on,
2: because
0: yeah. that's kind of the sound he, he got out of those guitars, and that's kind of what I've always searched to do. Yeah. but yeah I do and there there's been others through the years that i've played i uh, there's a, a a great resonator guitar maker in Hagerstown named Paul beard He's a good good friend of mine
2: uh-huh. and
0: um known him, known him for years and there there's through the years I've played some, uh, uh, some of his guitars I actually have two of his uh more modern guitars now that i that I still have that are great great guitars and then I actually recently purchased. Last year and a half, two more vintage guitars, and um, unfortunately, with all that's going on, I haven't had a chance to play them yet. But hopefully, looking forward to that sometime soon. But yeah. uh, and I still actually have my the first one I ever bought, which was a uh, my Dobro. It's uh, a March 27th, and I still have that one too. So I guess I had six. So that's not too bad, I guess, for guys been playing as long as I have.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: not too bad. I mean, and that's just recently. Like I said, I bought those two older guitars recently, so that kind of added to the flock pretty quick. So yeah. I've been, I've been pretty good about you know gathering instruments just to sit around the house, you know. So, but uh,
2: right. it's
0: fun. I enjoy messing with them. It's nice to tinker with them and see the differences in them because the newer guitars, and with all due respect, they're just fantastic. And yeah. They have so much more power and strength and and volume than the old guitars, and I think that's probably why I, it's hard for me. I can do it. It takes me a while to get used to guitar, though, because they're so different than the old vintage guitars. The one that I've been playing for years, and it that that guitar is kind of quiet and it's kind of a warm kind of you know sound, and you really have to play that thing to make it loud. Yeah. But you got to be careful. You can't play it too hard. Or you'll play the tone right out of it
2: right. and
0: so there's a fine line and i feel like these new guitars from my playing style with the old guitars they have a tendency to run it's hard for me to keep them in check they seem to run away from me
2: because yeah. they're
0: just they're just made to be you know loud and all that kind of thing so
2: yeah and
0: you know of course being a student of mike aldridge and kind of following you know the way he played you know playing clean that's that's the deal you know, you can't can't have no extra noises and overtones going on. Yeah. And so uh, that's that's really the difference that I see of, yeah. of, of the of the newer guitars versus the older guitars. But the, the new ones are just absolutely amazing.
2: Really yeah. considering. Right.
1: Fred, do you have any projects that's going to be uh, coming out anytime soon?
0: Well, actually, yes, Brad. Uh, okay. On June twelfth. There's gonna be a new release by Pine Castle Records. Uh, a recording produced by Tim Graves, great Dobro player. Uh, and it's called New Rezzo Gathering.
2: Okay. And
0: what Tim did is he 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 gathered up twelve Dobro resophonic players and and everybody did a tune and uh, it's uh, it's kinda of fun. It's kinda of like that that uh, Recording, uh, Jerry Douglas put together years ago. I think it was called Great Dobro Sessions.
2: Yeah. And I remember that.
0: It's kind of, kind of patterned after that. So yeah, that'll be available, uh, June 12th and uh, I'm very pleased that Tim asked me to be a part of it and appreciate Pine Castle Records and Tim for inviting me to be a part of it because uh, it's got some, some great players on it there. It's, it's, it's Tim, of course, and then Greg Booth, uh, Greg Blaylock, Matt Despain, Andy Hall, Brent Burke, Rex Wiseman, Kim Gardner, Justin Moses, and actually, I'm sorry, there's a couple more, and I've forgotten their names, so I apologize to those two guys. But they're probably the best, best two guys on the whole record. So, um, anyway, uh, it uh, it'll be uh, it'll be fun. It's it's great to be a part of it. So yeah. always fun to hear something new come out.
1: Absolutely, well, that's just, that is exciting. We'll look forward to hearing that come out there. I know that's going to be good with all you guys on there.
0: Oh, it was fun. You know, I'm looking forward to it myself because the only one I've heard is the cut that I did. And um I actually did it from a distance because I couldn't get down to... Uh, I think they might have recorded in Knoxville or something like that when they did the original tracking. At least some of them did. Yeah. But um so the guys, the studio guys down there, and, and also along with the Dobro players, the Rezo players, there's a great, you know contingent of supporting cast also you know
2: yeah. and
0: um they, they they did the tracks and um sent it up to me and i actually went over to jim robeson's house where we were talking about we recorded the uh changes album and put my part on there so i've heard that one but i haven't heard all the rest of them so i'm really excited to get me a copy of the cd so i can hear all these great players play these great tunes so oh, it'll yeah. be fun
1: absolutely well, Fred, thank you so much for talking with us today on the podcast and uh, keep making the great music you're making there and the uh, seldom seen. And gosh, I hope I can get to see you out on the road somewhere one of these days and catch up again.
0: Oh, well, I feel the same way, uh, Brad. And, and thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all the good work you're doing. And I really enjoy your podcast, as I'm sure your listeners do. And and uh, look forward to hearing the next one that you're going to put out because you're always getting some good folks on there that tell some stories that uh, maybe people haven't heard before or kind of give you a little inside information that you don't know. So yeah. keep up the good work, my friend, and you guys stay safe.
1: Thank you, Fred. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of Acoustic Music Talk. Be sure and join us again next week when we're going to be talking to banjo great Butch Robbins. Butch was a bluegrass boy with Bill Monroe. Uh, he did two different stints with Bill and we're going to be talking to him next week. So you don't want to miss that until then, everyone take care. I'm your host, Brad Apple, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to acoustic music talk. Join us again next week for another episode as we continue to explore the world of acoustic music.